Managing your 401k is hard. Bloom isn't. See what you could be doing to make your 401k better by getting a free analysis at bloom401k.com/fool. That's bloom with 3 o's. 401k.com/fool. It's Thursday, May 3rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, it's David Kretzman. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. It's earnings season. It sure is. Full steam ahead. It is full steam ahead. We're going to talk tech. We've got Spotify earnings. We've got Fitbit earnings. We've got to start, though, with Tesla for a couple of reasons. <laughs> uh, we'll get to the conference call in a second. Because right now, on CNBC's website, the top five trending stories in tech news are all about Tesla's conference call. I think something happened there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to the conference call in a second. Let's start with the actual quarter. The first quarter results, Tesla lost a record amount of money in the first quarter, and yet, somehow, that was still better than expected. When you looked at the quarter, what stood out to you besides their historic loss? Well, I think the the story with Tesla continues to be scaling production of the Model 3. Uh, they produced a little under 10,000 Model 3 vehicles this quarter. They produced about 25,000 Model S and Model X vehicles, but they're still well behind uh, the, the pace that they want, where they wanted to be with uh, Model 3 production. I think by the end of last year, they wanted to be producing somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,000 vehicles a week. Right now, they they just peaked out at about 2,300 vehicles per week. They're trying to to revamp uh, automation within the factories, just revamp the whole manufacturing process to get that number up to 5,000 vehicles a week. I think by July is when they're targeting, and then they're even talking about different ideas to get it up to 10,000 vehicles a week down the road. But uh, kind of the the theme here with Elon Musk continues to be overpromising, underdelivering, and hopefully, you know, there's an intersection of those two things. But uh, for now, I, I think all eyes continue to be on the Model Three. Musk staunchly. Says there's no way we're going to raise money this year. We don't need to raise money. When you look at their business right now, do you think they're going to raise money this year? Well, they're they're saying that they'll be profitable in the third and fourth quarter this year. So the next quarter will continue to be unprofitable, but they're saying they will bounce back to profitability and not just non-gap profitability or adjusted profitability, but gap profitability. I wouldn't necessarily bet on that, but if you look at the state of the company now, it's hard for me to see them making it the rest of the year without needing to raise capital somehow. They have $2.7 billion in cash on the balance sheet. Their net debt position is over $8 billion, and their cash burn right now is $4.4 billion. So, at the rate that they're burning cash right now, they won't make it another year without raising more cash. So, unless there's a dramatic improvement by the third quarter of this year, they're going to have to issue equity or debt, one of those two. So, given how the conference call went, I'm not sure. If they'll necessarily get very favorable terms with the cash, are probably going to need to raise later this year. And I think the conference call, as much as anything, has uh, is is the reason that shares of Tesla are down today. Because again, yes, they lost all this money, but it was actually better than expected. But the conference call just went off the rails because you had analysts who were asking questions that. Didn't strike me as overly pointed or overly personal, um, and they were asking about things like, "Are they going to need to raise capital uh, in terms of production for the Model Three, which is a, 
really the most important thing from a business standpoint that has to happen for Tesla yeah. is to get these cars out of the factory and into the hands of the people who have actually, you know, made reservations for them and at some point must just said this is killing literally said you guys are killing me. These bo- <laughs> these questions are so bo- boring, they're so dry. I'm going to take questions from YouTube. And he just essentially shut down the analysts and said, oh, "I'm just going to take questions from from Tesla owners on YouTube." And I I don't know. I just thought um, you maybe should consider stop doing conference calls because there's no requirement that they do conference calls or that the CEO be the one on the call. But I, I don't know. When, when you saw this unfolding, what went through your mind? Well, given the the state of Tesla's financials, they're like I said, unless they have a dramatic improvement in their their cash situation, there there's no way around it. They're going to need to raise money, so you don't want to get on the bad side of Wall Street because you need them to finance the company's growth at this point. And yeah, it might be best for Elon Musk to to stick to stick to Twitter and avoid uh, the conference calls. I mean. A Wall Street analyst asked, you know, where where the company will be in terms of capital requirement as they scale up Model Three production. And a direct quote from Elon Musk: He said, "Excuse me, next, next. Boring butthead questions are not are not cool. Next." Uh, so it's like, you know, that that's an important question that's really you know underlying the thesis uh, for for Tesla here. And there there is one aspect to this that I do think is kind of uh, interesting or, or worth praising. I, I do like the fact that they brought in a retail investor from YouTube, you know, a, a writer who covers Tesla on Seeking Alpha and YouTube. I like that they brought a retail investor onto the conference call to ask questions. That's something you don't typically see in the U.S. and other countries like Australia. Uh, you know, we have Motley Fool analysts and there, there's who, who will actually participate on the conference calls and have that presence. And it's not just limited to the investment banks. So I do like that aspect. Aspect of it, but really, you know, putting the middle finger toward Wall Street, and then just going to uh, the, the questions from this retail investor on YouTube, which we're talking about autonomous vehicles down the road, talking about uh, the supercharger network. Questions that are really more kind of outside the central investing thesis and the issues that Tesla uh, is going through. And it sounds like Musk would rather talk about those things, but when you need Wall Street on your side, uh, this wasn't Elon Musk's greatest performance, because I think that could bite the company in six months or so if they need to raise more money. And I understand and appreciate the comments that he made regarding short-term traders versus long-term investors. I totally understand that. I applaud that. I appreciate that. That being said, he he kind of cro- like he didn't just stop there. He you know because again the questions that were being asked actually went to whether they went to short term trading or not. They went to the short term financial situation of the company. You know which you talked about um, yesterday. Uh, I taped an interview with Becky Quick from CNBC. Mm-hmm. This weekend is the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. She's going to be going out to be one of the moderators uh, for the marathon Q and A session that. Buffett and Charlie Munger do, that goes for five or six hours, and uh, and that interview is going to be on Motley Fool Money tomorrow, and I'll I'll just give you a sn- one snippet of that interview because I one of the things I said to her was I can't imagine anyone else doing what Buffett and Munger are doing and having people care, you know even people who love Amazon, Facebook, and Disney, if. Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, or Bob Iger said, "I'm gonna at our annual meeting. I'm gonna sit up on a stage for five hours, and I'm gonna take 
any question you want. I don't think people would care particularly. And she said, you know what? I'm going to disagree with you because Buffett and Munger, it's unscripted. They'll take any question. It's basically like, ask us anything you want. Some of the questions are about, a lot of the questions are about the business of Berkshire Hathaway. Some of them are just sort of like, what book would you recommend? That kind of thing. They're more personal in nature. Um, I don't think Elon Musk would last 10 minutes in that type of setting. <laughs> you know, just that was one of the things that went through my mind. It was just like at one end of the spectrum in terms of public company CEOs, we have Warren Buffett, who once a year says, "Bring it on! Ask me anything you want, and I'll answer it." And again, Musk should really consider just taking a page out of Buffett's book in terms of the quarterly approach, because Buffett doesn't do quarterly conference calls. He just does like once a year. And so, if if part of Musk's thinking is, "No, I want to encourage." Long-term thinking, then maybe just ditch these calls altogether because this was uh, this was not good. Yeah, I just don't see what you accomplish by having this attitude on a conference call if you're notably like hating the process of talking <laughs> to Wall Street and answering key questions that any sensible analyst would be asking at this point. Then yeah, it's probably better just to to either. Take Musk off the calls, or just avoid the calls altogether, and control the narrative through through Twitter or other means. I I, I do think the the one thing that Tesla d- continues to have going for it, you have to remember this is a company that is not spending a dime on marketing. So if they can produce the vehicles, people are going to buy them. Like even if there are some people who reserved a Model Three over a year ago and, and cancel reservations, there's probably still well over two hundred thousand reservations. It's probably still closer to that original. Uh, 400,000 marks. So people want these cars. So Tesla's issue is not creating interest for the product, it's actually now manufacturing and delivering the product. And I suppose an optimist might look at what Elon Musk did on this call, and maybe he is so confident that the company doesn't need to raise money this year, which is something he has reiterated over the past several months. Maybe he is so confident that they will actually hit those production targets this summer, and they will be dramatically reducing their cash burn. So that isn't impossible, but just given the track record of Tesla and Musk, I don't think it's a given that they will hit 5,000 or 10,000 vehicles a week by the summer. If they do, then then potentially the financial situation is okay. But this doesn't give them a whole lot of flexibility when it comes to raising money from Wall Street. Happy first earnings report ever to Spotify. Uh, Spotify's first quarter wasn't great, <laughs> um, but they've got 170 million users. They've got 75 million. People who are paid subscribers. When you looked at the quarter, what stood out to you? I mean, they continue to grow both their their free ad supported users and those premium subscribers. Like you mentioned, they have 75 million premium subscribers. That still puts them soundly in the number one position in that streaming music space. Apple in their quarter earlier this week they reported that they have over 40 million paid subscribers with Apple Music. So Spotify almost has twice the number of subscriber paid subscribers as the the number two player there. So their leadership position is impressive. They're guiding to hit somewhere between 92 to 96 million paid subscribers in 2018. So when I look at Spotify I think the the near term outlook over the next one or two years is pretty bright uh, because they really have a nice funnel uh, with their 170 million monthly active users. People, a lot of people who are um, 
they're they're ad supported users, so they're they're not paying anything for the platform. But that's a nice funnel to potentially upgrade those people to um, the premium uh, subscription. So that that gives them uh, a nice tailwind or runway for growth over the next one or two years. I think the longer term question or the clouds hanging over the business are why you know people might might be having a harder time figuring out where does Spotify go from here uh, if Apple. Amazon, Google, YouTube are rolling into the the streaming music space. What can Spotify do to create some sort of sustainable differentiator from those other services? I think the challenging thing with the music category to have a music streaming service, you can't just have a small selection of songs. You need to have basically every song that's out there and more. And that and more piece, I think, is what people are waiting for. Like, do they go into exclusive um, contracts with with artists? Do they have original music? Because uh, I think right now, if you're an artist or a label, you don't necessarily want to just limit yourself to one platform. At this point, you want to be on as many platforms as you can. But the ultimate question here is: Can Spotify get to a point where they have more leverage in that relationship, and they're the one place that artists or labels want to go to? Uh, and I think if you're thinking about buying Spotify, you you really have to believe that they can get to that point. This quarter wasn't really all that much of a surprise in the sense that we've seen this from a lot of companies, particularly in the tech space, where they go public, and that first quarterly report just isn't all that great. And as we've said many, many times, it's so much more challenging to be a public company than it is to be a private company. That being said, I think that one of the advantages Spotify now has as a public company is it's very easy to compare them side by side with Pandora, and when you, and because for the longest time, if you heard one name, the the other name followed immediately, and those were sort of the two comparisons. And now that Spotify is a public company, and you can compare it to, you can just look at it and say, oh no 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 no. Spotify is so much bigger than Pandora. Bigger and better. <laughs> bigger and better. It is a $30 billion company. Pandora is not even a $2 billion company. So, I think that in terms of the narrative and to your point about musical talent and what they are considering, Pandora is way off to the side and it's really much more about. Apple Music, uh, Spotify, and you could you could probably throw Amazon Music in there as well, uh, although that's uh, you know that's just kind of like an add-on with Prime. Yeah, and, and supposedly Amazon Music has tens of millions of users. I think that's the latest number that Bezos and Amazon put out. So they might be a number three or number four player, but yeah, there's no doubt that Pandora dropped the ball when it came to. Launching uh, an on-demand, you know, subscription package for such a long time, Pandora was just dependent on that ad-supported platform, and I think they're still below 10 million premium subscribers, so well behind Spotify, Apple, Amazon. So yeah, I mean, Spotify compared to Pandora is in a far better situation. Uh, Pandora, I don't think, has ever been profitable or free cash flow positive. They're, they continue to burn cash and mount up some pretty substantial losses. Spotify is free cash flow positive. They have no debt, over half a billion dollars in cash, which is why they were able to do this direct IPO, where the company itself wasn't actually raising money when it went public. It was just really giving liquidity to to insiders and, and big uh, shareholders. So. 
Spotify has flexibility here. Uh, it's not like they, they need to scramble for a solution, but I think for any for Spotify, they need to figure out over the next three years or so how they can differentiate themselves. And that's really the, the, the question I think investors or potential investors should be watching. I want to say a quick word of thanks to Bloom for supporting today's episode of Market Foolery. Do you have a 401k? Remember how frustrating it was deciding what to invest in? Without professional help, well, now there's a better way to grow your 401k. That's with Bloom with three O's. Bloom is a simple, smart, and affordable way to grow your 401k. You can go online to bloom401k.com/fool and simply connect your existing 401k in a few easy steps, and then sit back and relax while Bloom performs an unbiased analysis of your funds in your account, and then chooses the best mix to meet your goals while minimizing hidden investment fees. Getting your investments right does not have to be hard or painful or time-consuming, because Bloom only takes five minutes, and then your retirement is set until you cancel, and they link to your existing 401k so you don't have to move your money, which is oh, that's never easy. Oh, moving no. your, I don't care what the situation is, moving your money is never as simple as you want it to be. And Bloom is so simple that really the hardest thing to remember about Bloom is that there are three O's in the name. So go to <laughs> bloom401k.com. Slash fool and enter the promo code fool for your first month free, and see the difference that Bloom could make in your retirement. Fitbit's first quarter loss was smaller than Wall Street was expecting. Revenue in the quarter would have been more of a bright spot if they didn't immediately follow it up by saying that, oh yeah, we have to lower guidance for the current quarter, <laughs> and if revenue wasn't actually dropping, right. so like beating estimates for revenue when revenue's dropping, I think it dropped. 15 or 17 yeah. percent this quarter. It's hard to get excited about that. Beating low expectations isn't something to be extremely proud of. And in this case, the number of devices that Fitbit sold dropped 27 percent to 2.2 million, down from 3 million last year. And a stat that Fitbit puts out there, and I think they put it out there as a positive thing, but I look at it in kind of a different light. 38% of activations of the devices that they sold this quarter, so 38% of the devices that were activated this quarter came from repeat users. And half of those repeat users were people who were previously inactive with their Fitbit for 90 days or more. So I think that just reinforces that the issue that Fitbit has is that I think a lot of people will buy these devices, whether it's a fitness tracker or a smartwatch. And you might use it for a few months, but then you get to a point where it's just kind of a nuisance. You forget about it, and it's just not a seamless thing to to integrate into your into your daily life. And Fitbit is in the midst of trying to pivot to becoming more of a software and services company, where they're tracking this health data. They could work with employers for you know corporate wellness programs, or work with hospitals and doctors, where you can easily sync up and access a patient's. Data and health tracking, but the problem with that strategy is the the software and the services will only be valuable if people are using the devices. And Fitbit, up to this point, has not proven that people are actually using these devices uh, on a regular uh, basis. And you might you might push back on that uh, by saying, well, maybe it's the the category as a whole. Wearables just aren't as flashy or sexy as they were a couple years ago when it was all the rage. But Apple, again, in the quarter that they just reported, they said Apple Watch sales grew in the double digits. It was a record for Apple Watch in the March quarter. So Apple Watch is gaining market share, and Fitbit is actually their revenue and their device sales are dropping. So this isn't just an industry problem. This is very much a Fitbit problem. Part of me wonders if 
because you and I were talking earlier today, and I was just trying to wrap my head around what is the bull case for not even what is the bull case for Fitbit, but what what is the thesis for buying this stock today? They've they've got some amount of brand cachet. Um, it's a it's a decent brand. The ease of use of the device um, is there, and I think that's an important thing. I've talked before about Venmo. Like <laughs> the, the the brilliance of Venmo is that people who are not smart about technology like me are able to use it. So whoever designed Venmo, kudos because they nailed that. So th- there are some positives there, but ultimately the thing I keep coming back to is. Yeah, that gets them to the point where someone buys them. I I still don't see them as a standalone company. Three to five years from now, is that like is that really the bull case right now? The thesis for this stock is: look, they've got there is value there. Someone's going to buy them. I think that's a big part of the the bull thesis here. Uh, Someone might look at it and have some optimism with that software and services piece, but right now management still says that's immaterial to to their overall revenue, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Because again, if people aren't really using the devices on a regular basis and aren't regularly engaging with those devices, I don't think many many organizations or individuals will find it appealing to pay for some sort of monthly premium Fitbit package. Maybe down the road at some point. Another issue. With Fitbit, uh, is new devices that they released over the past year makes up a third of their total revenue. So this is a company that constantly has to reinvent its products, and I think they launched three new products within the past year. And you just compare that to Apple Watch, which is like every year, eighteen months, they upgrade the Apple Watch, and it's selling like gangbusters. So again, this isn't just an industry issue. This is a Fitbit issue. Uh, another bright spot uh, for the company, obviously, a lot of Things going poorly, like they're they're projecting revenue to continue dropping through the rest of the year, uh, but half of their market cap today is in cash. The company has over six hundred fifty million dollars in cash, no debt. The market cap is about one point two billion dollars. So you look at that, and that does provide some cushion uh, for for the market value of the company, and you know by extension for the stock. They are burning cash. Uh, they've burned. Somewhere in the neighborhood of eighty million dollars over the past year, because they've been making acquisitions and cash flow has been, um, or free cash flow has been pressured, but but they are expecting for twenty eighteen to actually break even on a cash flow basis. So you look at it, and if the company gets to a point where it's not burning cash or not burning cash to a great degree, and you have over six hundred fifty million dollars in cash and no debt in the bank. That does give them a cushion and a lot of flexibility to to figure things out. I think in the meantime, the the stock doesn't <laughs> really look that appealing to yeah. me. Um, but I think you could look at that and say, well, sure, things aren't going great, but th- the downside might be minimal just given that that hefty cash pile. I can't decide if it would have been helpful for them. If remember when Under Armour bought My Fitness Pal? Yep. For like I don't know, seven hundred million dollars, whatever they <laughs> yeah, shelled out for. Hefty price tag. Hefty price tag, and that did not work out. And I'm I can't decide if that actually would have been helpful for Fitbit's current situation. If Under Armour was able to make that work, that more people, bigger companies, would be looking at Fitbit and saying, well, maybe we should think about kicking the tires on Fitbit, or if ultimately that was just now that's a completely separate situation because Under Armour just couldn't figure out a way to make that work. Yeah, it's an interesting category because it seems inevitable that we will get to a point where we're 
more uh, proactive in tracking our health and th that there will be some solution where our doctors can have access to our health data. And it just makes sense that the world is going that direction. And I don't think any company has really cracked that code. I think the advantage for Apple is obviously the brand cachet that they have and that the Apple Watch ties in very nicely with the, the entire iPhone ecosystem. And I think the Apple Watch is just far and away a better product compared to the smartwatches that uh, Fitbit or Fossil are putting out, because uh, the Apple Watch has GPS, it has the built-in cellular technology, so it's becoming a more and more powerful standalone device on its own. Uh, so in the case of Fitbit, they, they continually have to reinvent themselves when it comes to the hardware. Then they're trying to create and develop and acquire this software and services side of the business. But it's like if you're buying a device for the software and the services, you're probably going to stick with Apple Watch, which is Part of that, you know, a Apple platform and software ecosystem. So it's going to be an uphill battle for Fitbit, but I, I could see them may maybe plugging in to uh, a larger player somehow. They do have a partnership with with Google, uh, so so maybe that turns into a potential acquisition opportunity, and maybe that helps jumpstart the the software and services piece. But in the meantime, they need to prove that people are actually engaging with these devices more than th three or six months, because without that, then it's, it's going to continue to be an uphill battle for them. David Kretzman, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on Monday. Play at a club outside.